All right, the scripture we are looking at is John 20, 19 through uh, 31. Uh, this is the appearance of Jesus to the disciples uh, after the resurrection. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The word of the Lord. Well, today I want to talk about doubt. Doubt is kind of like a four-letter word in Christianity. Something we don't like to talk about. It's like something we don't like to acknowledge that we have. I want to uh, give you a definition of doubt from the dictionary. It's uncertainty with regard to the truth of a given proposition or assertion. An unsettled state of opinion or indecision of belief. We live in a world of doubt, don't we? A world of skepticism where everything is examined with a microscope. And we experience doubt in this world. Who of us can't remember standing on that diving board when a significant other, maybe a, a parent, was there saying to us, jump, I'll catch you, and experiencing that doubt. Will they really? Will I be safe? Maybe going through a dating relationship and breaking up, and then there's another opportunity, but that doubt creeps in. Will it happen again? We experience doubt with God, certainly. Think of the fall of man, all of the problems of the world, they stem from doubt. Satan came to Adam and Eve and said, did God really say not to eat from that tree? Doubt undermines our faith. It's James 1.6 that says that when we pray, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Well, in this passage, we see one who has actually had the moniker of doubting put by his name. I'm speaking, of course, of Thomas. 
doubting Thomas, who said, unless I put my hands in the nail marks and in the side, I will not believe. Well, how does Jesus deal with doubting Thomas? He meets Thomas in his doubt, and he turns it to faith. And Thomas gives one of the uh, greatest recognitions in the entire Bible of Jesus, my Lord and my God. And how is it that Jesus does this? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. But maybe you are like Thomas as you sit here before me today. The doubt is like a ball and chain around you, dragging you down, causing you to doubt the promises and all that God has for you in Jesus Christ. Jesus wants to meet you today in your doubt and to replace it with peace and confidence. Jesus invites us to experience his love so that we would never have to doubt him again. Well, how do we do this? How do we experience this confidence in Christ? We need to do three things. Number one, we need to receive his peace. We need to receive his peace. And then number two, we need to touch his side. And then finally, number three, we need to tell his story. Let's look at my first point. We need to receive his peace in order not to doubt. Notice on verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, this is Sunday, all of the disciples are in a room with the doors being locked. We believe it's the upper room, the same room where Jesus had told him, told them that uh, he was going to die for their sins. And they're up there because of fear of the Jews. And even though the doors are locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Jesus somehow goes through the door. We don't understand it. Jesus' new resurrected body, it's supernatural, yet at the same time, it's material. For Jesus invites them to touch him, right? And Jesus says to them, peace be with you. In Hebrew, shalom alechem, which means peace be upon you. Still used in Israel today where you would say shalom alechem, peace be be unto you. And the person would respond, Alechem Shalom, which means unto you be peace as well. But when they saw Jesus and they heard this response, they were startled and frightened, thinking that they had seen a spirit. This is actually from Luke. I'm, I'm, I'm adding in a parallel account. They were terrified as a result of seeing uh, Jesus because they believed that it was a ghost, that it was a spirit that had come. And in Luke, Jesus says to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. We go back to our passage in John 20, 20. When they, he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. The word glad means rejoice. They rejoice. They believe. And then Jesus does something very interesting. He says to them again, peace be with you. In other words, Jesus is not just giving a greeting. Jesus is reiterating something here to explain that I'm trying to communicate something to you. When I'm saying peace be with you, what I'm saying to you is that peace is now 
with you. I come to bring you peace. Keep in mind what that could mean for the disciples who are hiding up in this room, locked for fear of what could happen to them. Jesus is saying, Shalom is with you. Now, Ken started sharing a little bit about the concept of Shalom, but I want to share a little bit more about it. It's derived from a Hebrew root which denotes wholeness or completeness. And throughout Jewish literature, it's bound up with this notion of shemalut, which means perfection. Wholeness, completeness, perfection. Or all that is to be as it should be. Maybe you've felt this a couple of times in your life. Maybe at a a reunion where your family is with you and you're uh, feasting and enjoying life together and everything is in harmony and there's this peace that you are experiencing with the world, and and you just have this sense of all is well. And then, of course, someone breaks a dish or an argument breaks out, and off it goes. See, all is as it should be, is what life is meant to be, right? That's why in Hebrew, when they say shalom alchem, what they're saying is, I wish that you would experience this peace. I want you to experience this peace. But when Jesus is bringing this greeting, he's not saying, I wish that you would experience this at some time in your life, but rather I've come to bring this to you. Jesus's ministry, the reason why he came into this world was to bring shalom to us. Because our state before Christ came into the world was this, that we had no shalom with God. In fact, we were enemies of God, right? Ephesians 2.2 says that once we walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We had no peace, no shalom with God. We had no peace with ourselves. There was an emptiness in our hearts, a feeling of never being satisfied, of not right in my own skin. And no shalom in the world, but rather relating to the world with fear and anxiety. But Jesus came into the world and he promised peace. Numerous times he said to his disciples, for instance, in John 16, 33, I've said these things to you so that in me, you may have shalom. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying, in me, you will find shalom. And I have overcome the world. Jesus in John 14, 27 said, shalom I leave with you. My shalom I give to you, not as the world gives to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus came so that we would not live life with uncertainty, with anxiety, that the result of Christ's ministry would be that we would live in peace with God and ourselves. And so Jesus has gone to the cross. They've experienced this tremendous anxiety. They're locked in a room for fear of what's going to happen to them. They don't even know what tomorrow will bring. 
And Jesus comes to them and says, I bring you shalom. And then he doesn't explain how he brings them shalom. He shows it. He showed them his hands and his side. As if to say, I have done what I said I was going to do. I have won this peace for you. How does his hands and his side show this? It shows that he has paid the price to reconcile us to God. Remember those final words on the cross after Jesus has suffered? It is finished, which means paid in full. Romans 5.1 says, since we have been justified by faith, we have shalom with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus has bought for us peace with God, and he has freed us from the curse of our fallenness. Remember that all of humanity fell in Adam. When Adam and Eve fell, all of humanity fell. We all inherited the curse of Adam and Eve. But Jesus came to give us new life. Romans 6.3 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Jesus moves us from being in Adam to being in Christ. He gives us new spiritual life, which will culminate ultimately in a new physical life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. Jesus, we see in verse 22 that he breathes on them and he says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is one of those passages where you're like, what? What's he doing? Are they experiencing some sort of private Pentecost? And the answer is, I don't think so. The word in the Greek here, emphyseo, from where we get the word emphysema, for instance, has no direct object. When we read it, we see, and he breathed on them, but it doesn't say that. It's inferred, or it's, it's uh, what's the word? It's translated that way, but there's no direct object. Literally, it says, and with that, he breathed and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And the reason why I don't think that at that moment that Jesus actually gave them the Holy Spirit is because we don't see a change in them, Right? Seven days, eight days later, the doors are still locked. They're going back to their old ways. They're going fishing. They're still experiencing anxiety. It's a far cry from the power, joy, and exuberant witness and courageous preaching that is displayed by them in the early church after Pentecost in Acts. Rather, Jesus is communicating to them through breathing by giving an object lesson about what he is about to do. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus at night, so is everyone who is born of the pneuma, the spirit, which also can be translated breath. Breath, that's what Jesus is saying. Everyone who is born of my breath is 
receives new life. Jesus indeed in Acts 1-4 told them not to go anywhere, but you stay here until you have received my power, for you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And we know the rest of the story, right? On Pentecost Day, where the Spirit is poured out by Jesus Christ. And these promises of peace be with you are internalized through the Spirit. Jesus has died and risen again to secure us shalom. And he transfers it to us through the Holy Spirit. If you are a follower of Christ, you have received the Spirit. And if you have received the Spirit, you have received the promise of shalom. Last year, thousands of people were given an incredible gift, one that they carry wherever they go every day. It's the gift of life that's beating in their chests, an organ donated by a generous donor or donor family. Last year, organ procurement organizations and transplant hospitals worked to perform a record 3,817 heart transplants performed across the country. I mean, it's amazing that science can do this kind of thing, right? It's very limited those who can receive a new heart. You have to be in heart failure. In other words, your, your heart is going to give out. You are going to die otherwise. But even those people, you have to find a heart of the right size that's only four to six hours away because the heart only has a certain period of time until it dies. The cost of a heart transplant is $1.6 million, a very, very expensive substitution. See, I bring this up because I want you to understand that Jesus Christ has come to give us heart shalom, rightness in our souls with God and ourselves. So do you feel that? Do you feel the weight of the price that was paid for you? See, there's one thing about a heart transplant. Not only do you have to be the right candidate and to be within a certain, uh, you know, geographic location of the heart, but there's one other thing that you need in order to receive a heart transplant. And that is that you must agree to it. Nobody gets a heart transplant against their will. So do you want his shalom? Do you want what he came to do and has accomplished on behalf of his people? Because that is his gift for you if you are a follower of Christ. I need to tell you that if you are not a follower of Christ yet, if you are not a Christian, you can look all throughout this world and you will never find the shalom that you are looking for. For shalom is not a principle. Shalom is a person. But if you are a Christian and you're not experiencing his shalom, perhaps you're seeking it in other places. In a career, when I finally reach this particular position, then all will be well. In a relationship, when finally I'm right with my spouse or significant other, then all 
will be well. Maybe my circumstances, when I finally have this amount in my bank account, and I don't have all of these particular problems, then all will be well. You cannot find shalom in any place other but Jesus Christ. So ask for his peace, for that's what he came to give to you. But this, of course, brings me to the question, but what about doubt? You know, it's one thing to have objective shalom, what he has, what he has done for you. But it's another to internalize it and to actually live in it. And doubt is a big problem. And that's why, why I want to talk about our second point, to touch his side. We come to Thomas now, one of the 12, who was not with them when Jesus came. And so Jesus comes and he leaves and they find Thomas. Thomas walks in. He's just late. You know, maybe Thomas is chronically late or something. And they say to him, we have seen the Lord. I mean, you can see it, right? There are 11 of them. There are uh, 10 of them. They're going ballistic. They're so excited. And they're all jabbering at Thomas. And they're telling him what happened. And he came and he invited us. And in fact, he said, do you guys have anything to eat? And we gave him a piece of fish and blah, blah, blah. And Thomas says, unless I see his hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into his side, I will never believe. No, 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 Thomas, you don't, I'm, we're telling you, Thomas. We saw, no. Why doesn't Thomas believe? Well, first of all, he saw what they did to Jesus. And nobody comes back from that, right? The second thing was that he loved Jesus. You know, Thomas is only mentioned twice in the Gospels specifically by name, aside from uh, surrounding his doubt. And one of them is in the uh, account of Lazarus. When Jesus says, you know, we're going to go see Lazarus and I'm, I'm going to raise him. But they don't understand. The disciples said, look, you cannot go to where Lazarus is because everybody's seeking to kill you. But Jesus says, let us go. And Thomas says, let us go with him so that we may die with him. In other words, Jesus, this is the wrong decision. They're going to kill you, but I'm with you to the death. He loved, he loved Jesus. It's interesting that Ken actually mentioned the other time when Thomas's name is mentioned, which is, we don't know the way that you are going. So how can we know where you're going? And Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life. And Thomas believed, and he loved Jesus. And it hurt too much to lose him the first time. So Thomas is basically, you know, fool me once, shame on you, right? But fool me twice. See, that's the why he wants proof, why he needs proof, because he can't believe it. So I can imagine for the next seven days, it says eight days, but it's Sunday to Sunday. The, the disciples are just communicating with him. You have to believe, Thomas. And Thomas is saying, I won't. But then in verse 26, on the next Sunday, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas is with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom is with you. Then he said to Thomas, 
Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. First of all, how did he know that Thomas was doubting? Well, it's because Jesus knows everything. And he knows each one of our hearts. This is why I encourage you and all of us to always be brutally honest with the Lord in prayer. Because he already knows everything anyways, right? Now, this is the way this story should go. Jesus never shows up for Thomas. Thomas doesn't believe, and because he doesn't believe, he doesn't get to experience the miracle of Jesus Christ, right? Because Thomas didn't believe, and that's the way things work for people when they don't believe. But that's not what happens, does it? Jesus does show up for Thomas and says, put your finger in my hands. Put your hand in my side. Jesus brings proof to a doubting Thomas, and the proof is his scars. Isn't it interesting that the scars were the proof that he gave both the disciples and Thomas? I mean, why not just his face or his voice, right? Wouldn't that be enough? In fact, do you ever wonder why Jesus Christ still has scars on his resurrected body? Because we know from reading and when we receive our resurrected bodies, they will be perfect, right? In fact, I believe there will only be one set of scars on anybody in all of heaven. And they will be on Jesus Christ. Because the scars are the proof of his payment. They're the proof of his love. Jesus is proud to show the scars because they are marks of his love. For Jesus, scars are synonymous with himself. The passage that I just read during praying the scriptures, you know, whenever they refer to Jesus Christ as the lamb, it's always the lamb who was slain, right? First of all, you're like, well, why do you, a lamb? I mean, that's so weak. But a lamb who was slain. It's communicating who Jesus is. And I think the reason that the disciples and Thomas, when they saw the scars, they saw Jesus because they know that Jesus is love. This is 1 John 4, 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus shows Thomas his love. And Thomas's eyes are opened and he says, my Lord and my God. His doubt is replaced with certainty. What does this tell us? It tells us that Jesus meets us in our doubt. He's not put off by our doubt and our disbelief and our uncertainty. But rather, he meets our doubt 
head on, and he answers our doubt with certainty. He shows us his scars that say, I love you. I have died for you. And I live again that you might know my love. He will not be content until we sit in his love. And then he pronounces a blessing on all of us who come after. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So how can we believe and not doubt? If it took Thomas actually touching the scars, though we don't ever know that he actually did it. It has to be something as powerful as touching the physical body of Jesus. And Christ has left us something that is just as powerful as that. And this, that is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. As the scriptures say in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. For all who believe. For in the gospel, a righteousness by faith is made known. See, Jesus has left us his living words in the scripture. The gospel which speak to our hearts and open our eyes in the same way that as if we were standing right next to Jesus Christ, looking at the scars in his hand. Jesus said in John 5, 24, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who have sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The words of the gospel are the voice of Jesus Christ. For the Bible is Jesus preaching to us, showing us his scars. I found this is very interesting. It was uh, uh, a letter that was written by Albert Einstein. He wrote uh, numerous letters, and his daughter, Liesel, I can't pronounce her name, so we'll just say Liesel, donated them uh, to Hebrew University with orders not to publish them until two decades after his death. And this is one of them, one that he wrote to his daughter, Liesel. Einstein says in this letter, when I proposed the theory of relativity, very few understood me. And what I will reveal now to transmit to mankind will also collide with the misunderstanding and prejudice in the world. I ask you, Liesel, to guard the letters as long as necessary, years, decades even, until society is advanced enough to accept what I will explain below. There is an extremely powerful force that so far science has not found a formal explanation to. It is a force that includes and governs all others and is even behind any phenomenon operating in the universe and has not yet been identified by us. This universal force is love. When scientists looked for a unified theory of the universe, they forgot the most powerful unseen force. Love is light that enlightens those who give and receive it. 
Love is gravity because it makes some people feel attracted to others. Love is power because it multiplies the best we have and allows humanity not to be extinguished in their blind selfishness. Love unfolds and reveals. For love, we live and die. Love is God, and God is love. This force explains everything and gives meaning to life. This is the variable that we have ignored for too long, maybe because we are afraid of love, because it is the only energy in the universe that man has not learned to drive at will. To give visibility to love, I made a simple substitution in my most famous equation. If instead of E equals MC squared, we accept that the energy to heal the world can be obtained through love multiplied by the speed of light squared, we arrive at the conclusion that love is the most powerful force there is because it has no limits. After the failure of humanity and the use and control of the other forces of the universe that have turned against us, it is urgent that we nourish ourselves with another kind of energy. If we want our species to survive, if we are to find meaning in life, if we want to save the world and every sentient being that inhabits it, love is the one and only answer. Perhaps we are not ready to make a bomb of love, a device powerful enough to entirely destroy the hate, selfishness, and greed that devastate the planet. However, each individual carries within them a small but powerful generator of love whose energy is waiting to be released. And when we learn to give and receive this universal energy, dear Liesel, we will have affirmed that love conquers all, is able to transcend everything and anything, because love is the quintessence of life. I deeply regret you having not having, uh, I deeply re regret not having been able to express what is in my heart, which has quietly beaten for you all my life. Maybe it's too late to apologize, but as time is relative, Einstein joke, I need to tell you that I love you, and thanks to you, I have reached the ultimate answer. Your father, Albert Einstein. Do you know the love of Christ, who is the originator and generator of all love? Not know it objectively, but really know it in your heart. He did not get up on a cross and die for you so that his love would be known remotely, distantly, or as an abstraction. He has implanted his love in the gospel and sent his love hurtling through time and space through the power of the Holy Spirit like living words that are arrows to our heart. Christ is in his word. He is his gospel. And he wants each one of us to feel his side and to touch his hands, not with our hands, but with our heart. So seek Christ in his word. Go back every day, every moment to his gospel. When you doubt, when you're overwhelmed, when you disbelieve, 
Ask Jesus the question, do you still love me? Is your love enough? And he will show you in his way, his nail marks and his side. For Jesus invites us moment by moment, minute by minute to experience his love so that we would never have to doubt again. And this leads me to my final point, that we get to tell his story. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. How did the Father send Jesus in love? And in the same way, he sends us in love. He's saying, take my living message of love and share it with the world. Now, he says this strange thing in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And we must always interpret in the greater context of the Bible. Men cannot forgive sins, even apostles, particularly for any arbitrary reason. What he's saying is, hold out to people my word of life. And it is my word of life which saves and condemns. Let my word have its way in the world. Be a guardian of the gospel. And so you see, my friends, we are sent ones. Jesus desires us to be ambassadors of love, of his love. As Ephesians 4.32 says, Be imitators of God, therefore, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Some way that we don't understand when we love, our love magnifies the love of Christ because he is love. There is a hunger in this world that we all have diseased hearts if we don't have Christ. And we can't see inside our next door neighbor or our person in the office next to us or the woman next to you in fitness class. But what they desperately need and long for is love. And that's what we have to give. Does your heart have love in it? If it does not, you must go back to Jesus and his cross and stay there until he meets you, and it does so that you can become a river of love to take this love into a world that is desperate for it. Jesus invites us, like he invited Thomas and the disciples, to experience his love so that we would never have to doubt him again. So receive his peace, touch his side, and tell his story. That is the promise that Jesus has for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you come to us in our doubt. That we don't have to hide from you in our doubt. But rather, we need to run to you in our doubt. 
For you want to show us the proof of your love, that you are enough. In your gospel and through your Holy Spirit, you reassure us and open our eyes and fill our hearts with your love. I pray for all of those who feel empty inside, that they would run to you with open hearts, expectant, waiting, and that you would fill them to overflowing so that we could go out into this world and bring your love to so many diseased hearts. That is what you want to do to us and through us. And by your grace, you will do it. So we thank you. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.